0: And like Golan Trevese, I mean he's gonna be our protagonist. He's like, you know, the rebel whom we're supposed to sympathize with. But he he comes into the council chambers he's just like waving his hands and you know, the Selden plan is fake and I have proof and blah blah blah. And he just seems like such a nut job. Like I'm thinking of him like he's Matt Gates or something. Yeah.
1: This is the Star's End podcast, where we talk about Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, the Apple TV Plus adaptation, and other topics related to Asimov and sci-fi. I'm John.
2: I'm Joseph. We've already read the original Foundation series, the prequels, and the robot novels together, and we've reviewed two seasons of the TV show.
0: And I'm Dan. This season, we're going to be reading the Foundation sequels, with a couple of surprise detours on the way back to Earth.
1: Welcome to episode one of season five that's right season five of the stars End podcast last season was season two of the foundation TV show on apple plus and we had a great time doing that and now we are moving on to a new season of reading Asimov books and the first book that we're going to read is going to be the first foundation sequel we've already done the original foundation books which were foundation foundation and empire and second foundation. And we did the prequel books, Prelude to Foundation, and forward the, the Foundation. Forward the Foundation was it? Forward the Foundation, and then Prelude. No, it was Prelude then forward. Then prelude, yeah. I can't even remember. But now Foundation's Edge, which is the first of two sequels. The second one was called Foundation and Earth, which was the last Foundation book written by Isaac Asimov. Well, actually. For The Foundation was the last Foundation book written by Isaac Asimov because he wrote the sequels first, and then he went back and wrote the prequels. So that was an incorrect statement. But Foundation's Edge was the first new Foundation book that he had written since the early 1950s. And when asked about it, Asimov said, basically, the publishers offered me so much money, I couldn't say no. So we know his motivation behind writing. And it may be like the rest of us, he was interested in uh, what happened to the Foundation. And and really maybe intended to take the story all the way up to the end. Uh, so Foundation's Edge came out to great fanfare in 1982. It, it I believe it was June 1st of 1982. It was the first Asimov book, a novel, well, any book really, that was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. He had written hundreds of fiction and nonfiction books before, and God knows how many stories. But he had never really been a bestseller. He'd been a a kind of a niche science fiction writer. But there was so much acclaim and so much anticipation about Foundation's Edge, people just flocked to it. I know I bought it absolutely as soon as there was a chance to get it. I, I didn't care what the reviews were like, and I didn't care what the story was like. It was a new Foundation book by Asimov. I had to have it. And the reviews were mixed. Uh, you can find a lot of them online some people could not understand what the point was some people found it boring some people could not deal with asimov's continued penchant for putting two people in a room together and having them have a chat and we'll see some of that here and today we're going to read the first four sections but before we go on to that uh guys any comments about uh, your experience with the foundation's edge
2: oh uh, mine was mine was very similar to yours it was a it was a revelation that, and I I don't know if if, if he... St- I guess it's about the same time we got um, Rama 2 and we got like two, 2010 and we started getting new stuff from Arthur Clark as well. And so it was actually a very exciting time to uh, yeah. be enjoying those two authors.
0: I, I think it came out right when I had just discovered Asimov. So I, I remember getting the science fiction book of the month club, like three in one foundation mm-hmm. series hardcover, oh, wow. and then finishing that through and then going out and getting the paper back for foundation's edge immediately after that would, it came out just then. So um, this, this hit me, you know, right at the beginning of my sort of uh, experiencing Asimov and, re- and really experiencing sci-fi novels uh in my the first flush of uh reading as a
1: tween, um so this was this was really formative
0: for me nice yeah
1: right i had probably read the foundation series five or six years before Mm -hmm. which would have made me about 11 or 12 years old when i read foundation and then 17 going on 18 when i read foundation's edge yeah, I, I but I was very excited about it.
2: Yeah, me too. I, I must have read the trilogy junior high school, so um it was what? 76, 77, somewhere in there.
1: Okay. Yeah, that sounds about right. Would have been about the same time as me. Mm-hmm. When did God Emperor of Dune come out? I I don't remember, but that was a similar sort of event.
2: Yeah, I feel, you know, I feel like that that was trilogy. I feel like I I remember um Ad, ads for that when I was in the science fiction book club in ninth grade, I could be completely off base there.
1: I don't know. I could look it up, but I'm not going to. But it was a similar sort of event. You had the three Dune books, which for me were in the past, and but I, and I read them as a as a teenager, and then uh, God Emperor of Dune came out and it was a big event, and it was similar. It was similar, very similar in in uh, in a lot of ways to the way in which. Foundation's Edge was presented. 1981, so it had only been a year before that God Emperor of Dune came out. So you're right, it was a period where all of these kind of giants of science fiction were going back and revisiting their old their old classics and, and putting sequels on them. So Asimov wasn't the only one.
2: No, but it might've been like, hey, Isaac got a bestseller on the New York Times list.
1: <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure God Emperor of Dune was too, and okay. that might've influenced Asimov. Fair enough. Because... I I remember God Emperor of Doom was on the bestseller list for a long
2: time, as I recall. Might have influenced Doubleday to say, hey, here's a bucket of money.
1: These guys are still alive. (laughs) This is (laughs) like, you know, (laughs) let's squeeze something out of them before before that's not true anymore. So should we, I'm not going to do a a full line by line recap, but I will do a little bit of a recap. We we read four chapters for today. Uh, The first one was called Councilman in which we are introduced to Golan Trevise, who is the protagonist of this and the next book, or at least one of the protagonists. And he is a councilman on the Foundation, and they have just come from a a, a visitation by Harry Seldon in the vault. And for those who have not read the books but have only seen the TV show, it's a little bit different in the books. What they get is a hologram of Harry Seldon that he recorded at right before the foundation was established in this case it's been 500 years so we've we've had a bit of a time jump ahead but there's no interactive hologram here there's just harry Seldon with a hologram saying well you guys have done this that and the other thing you just faced this that and the other crisis congratulations and now we move on to the next however long it's going to be before i come back yeah, and Seldon hmm?
2: closer to a vcr tape than uh yeah the,
1: much very much so And Selden has been apparently phenomenally accurate in his description of what the Foundation has just gone through. A crisis which, as far as I can gather, centered around whether or not they should move the capital from Terminus, where it's been since the beginning, to somewhere further in towards the interior. And there was a faction that wanted to do that because that would get them closer to being a galactic empire. The current mayor who we're going to meet was against it she prevented it from happening. And then when Harry Seldon arrived, he confirmed that it would have been a terrible idea to move the Capitol to the interior. It's really good that they didn't do that. And it really just seemed to me kind of a throwaway story. Like Asimov did not really care about that crisis. We really hear very little about the details of it or why it matters. But anyway, it's a story that gets us through this visitation in the vault. And Trevese, our hero, is talking to a fellow councilman. They're both quite young, early 30s. Uh, I believe Treviz is 32. I'm not sure if his friend Munli Kompor, who we meet, is the same age, but approximately. I think they knew each other in in, in college or in high school or something. The details have become fuzzy. And Trevise is telling Compor, who, by the way, uh, Asimov describes as being blonde-haired and blue-eyed, which is very unusual on the foundation. And I think maybe he was just kind of going against our normal type of the sort of sandy-haired Robert Redford type that we all consider good-looking, but that the foundation looks on a little bit askance. He's just kind of switched things up on us there. Anyway, Treviz is talking to Compoor about his theories that basically it is impossible that Harry Seldon 500 years ago could have gotten the call so accurately now. You know, after everything that happened with the mule and the second foundation getting them back on track, and then the destruction of the second foundation, how could things be so accurate unless some outside influence was 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 causing things to happen that way? And Compor is is uh, is uh, somewhat shocked, and he's like, "Don't say these things." And and Trevi says, "I'm going to go into the council chamber, and I'm going to say exactly these things," which takes us to chapter two, which is about the mayor. Harle Brano, the third major character that we meet here, and it is Mayor Brano, who is described as not being as dynamic as the Salverhardens and Hobermallows of the world, but she's called Brano the Brass. She, she's, she's very strong, and she rules things with an iron fist. And the description of the mayor's office is that it is the most powerful person in the galaxy everywhere except on Terminus, where the mayor's job is very, very tightly monitored by the council or offset by the council. She does not have absolute power on Terminus. It's very democratic between them. Off of Terminus, she's an absolute autocratic ruler of the foundation's current empire. So Trevise goes into the council chamber to make his speech about how Harry Seldon could not possibly have planned this. And he wants to talk about the second foundation and his theory that it was never destroyed. And Brano promptly has him arrested for treason something that she in her internal monologue says only on this day when I was so right about what Harry Seldon wanted, could I get away with this kind of stuff, but I'm going to use it to the fullest advantage. And she actually has, she tells Trevise she could have him arrested in the chamber if he wants to make a scene, but he should probably just leave and the security officers are waiting outside. So Trevise really didn't expect this to happen. And, uh, oh, I forgot that, that when Trevise left Compoor. Compor muttered under his breath, fool. And when Trevise walks out of the council chamber, Brano mutters under her breath, fool. And then he's taken into custody and he's brought to the head of security, Leono Codell. Once again, a name that I do not know whether that's the correct pronunciation or not. It could be Codell. It could be Codel, It could be Smith. I don't know. But Codell, who seems very jovial, but is actually quite menacing, is going to have a recorded interview of Travis And it's clear that he wants Travis to say certain very specific things that they can use later on. And Travis doesn't really have any choice but to cooperate. And so he kind of gives Codell what he wants. He's very upset. He's a councilman. How dare they pull him out? You know there's going to be consequences. And Codell says, I don't, I don't care about any of that. I just want to get the recordings that I need. And now we're taking you home. And he gets in the car with a fine, upstanding military officer, another type that we've seen from asimov the incorruptible guy who's only doing his job, but damn it, he's going to do a really good job of being a soldier. And he takes him back to treviz's house, and waiting for him there, in addition to more guards, is Mayor Brano to have a heart-to-heart with him. And uh, she's, you know, calls him an idiot and stupid and young and. You know, why would you want to go and say these things out loud where anyone can hear them? Slowly dawns on Trevise that she actually agrees with him about the Second Foundation. Uh, She claims that the reason they can speak about it now is that she has the house surrounded by a mental static field, which was something that was developed back in Second Foundation. That was how they discovered the members of the Second Foundation. It turns out, of course, that she's lying, as she tells Cadell later. You know, the, the the greatest sign to the Second Foundation that we were up up to something would have been a mental static field around the house. So, of course, I didn't do They're not. They can't, they can't possibly be watching us all the time. Anyway, she tells Trevise that he's going to go off looking for the Second Foundation. She's going to give him a, an updated ship and he doesn't have any choice. She just kind of maneuvers him into it. You know, again, she she, she considers him a fool but he you know he has no choice he has to go i mean she definitely threatens to kill him if he doesn't go she also threatens to kill him if he tries to come back without any results so the next day we meet his traveling companion janov pellerat and i cannot help but say again janov pellerat is yet another asimov type he is the kind of stuffy sort of academic although not formally an academic i mean he's 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 very much like homer Munn. In a lot of ways. He doesn't have a stutter like Mun had, but he has sort of a stuffy way of speaking. He's a little, you know, I, in reading Pellerat, I I imagined him being fat, although he is described specifically not as being fat. He's of average height and average weight. So unless average weight means fat, he's actually just sort of a normal looking guy. But he has a very kind of, oh, oh I, I say, I say Trevise, you know, kind of kind of. <laughs> Well, you'll get to hear more of my interpretation of Jan Pellerat because when Joel McKinnon gets around to doing the dramatizations of these books, I am going to do the voice of Jan Pellerat nice. as I did the voice of Homer Munn, and I am going to try to make sure they're not identical. So I'm working on it. Anyway, Pellerat is a historian, sort of a self-taught historian. He's published some work, but not that much. But he's very interested in the origins of humanity. Now wait a minute! Didn't it say that he never managed to publish a single article?
2: No, it does not.
1: It doesn't. And later on, later on in the book, he's going to meet this guy who claims to have read some of his work. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. So he says that he was only with great difficulty did he ever get to publish anything. (sighs) Okay, but no one ever was interested in it. Yeah. Yes. But he's interested in the origins of the human race, and. Again, it's a little bit of exposition from Asimov in which he quite rightly explains why humanity had to have come from one planet. Um, you, humanity could not have evolved on multiple planets. Uh, it's, it's, that's just not the way evolution works. Treviz, unless, you're in, unless
2: you're in the Star Trek universe. Uh,
1: not Star Trek biology is not uh, my favorite uh, Star Trek science, I have Fair to enough. say. <laughs> Fair enough. It is... Um, yeah, no. And Star Trek's view of how evolution works particularly is absolutely off the wall. Anyway, so Pellerat wants to go out into space, which he's never done, which is that that he does say he's never done. He's never gone out into space, which is rare for the modern resident of Terminus. Everybody goes out into space at some point, but Pellerat has never done it. He, he has his computer connected to libraries all over the galaxy, and that's good enough for him but he wants to go visit the library on Trantor, the famous library on Trantor that we've seen before, the Imperial Library that was spared during the sack of Trantor, strangely. We later found out, of course, spoiler alert, that's where the Second Foundation was, and that's why that particular library was never sacked. But we, it, it, the library has been a character in previous books, and Pellerat wants to go there and hope that he can find something that even Ebling Miss, who found the location of the Second Foundation, couldn't find he wants to find the location of earth which seems to be lost there are legends and we're going to hear more about those legends Pellerat has a candidate in mind for what might be earth we're going to hear more about that later on and he's very excited to be going off into space treviz is still somewhat skeptical and still somewhat surprised that that brano has been able to get away with this but she continues to get away with it so we've met Pellerat. and the next day we meet the ship and this is where um, I really feel like Asimov kind of showed us something that he rarely showed us before because we have what is largely a conversation between Travis and Pellerat that we've seen, the, the two men in a room having a conversation. But Pellerat, I'm sorry, travis kind of links with this computer and it would look to me like an effort for Asimov to, try to kind of leapfrog forward technologically He brings us to a computer that links with your mind and it allows the ship to become an extension of Trevis's mind and he very excitedly wants to show pelarat the uh, the, you know the how he can display the galactic map which is something we've seen before we've seen a couple of galactic maps we saw them in the in the mule story when bale chanis and han pritcher went out into space but he's able to kind of project this holographic view of the galaxy and maneuver around. He can, he can move time forward and backward. This very spectacular view. And it's Asimov rather than just having two men in a room, having a conversation, he is actually showing us through action and not just description, this active view of the galaxy. And it's, it's very engaging and it's very, to me, uh, asimov like, and, and it was nice to see that he could do it when he wanted to rather than just the typical dialogue that he had. So this is a very sophisticated ship. It's the foundation's most sophisticated ship. Uh, it doesn't have any weapons, but we're gonna find out that it has quite a few capabilities in addition to just linking with the mind. Uh, it's got a gravitic drive, so there's no sense of acceleration whatsoever. In fact, they take off during a conversation between Trevis and Pellerat, and Pellerat's quite shocked to find out that they're actually in space and not anymore on the ground because he's never been in space, so he has a little a little trepidation. And of course, uh, with the tech, the technological advances, uh, as we were talking about before we started, um, you know, Peller Asimov does miss occasionally, uh, Pelerat was very proud of himself because he was able to get his entire library on a wafer. Was it eight centimeters on the side? I think it was eight centimeters on the side.
2: Yeah. So uh, it's a five and a half inch floppy basically.
1: Right. <laughs> Whereas we get, you know, terabytes on a little yeah. tiny, uh, <laughs> a little uh. high density drive. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, and this is, this is, uh, this is twenty. We're still twenty thousand years in the future. Twenty thousand plus five hundred. So, any thoughts on uh, on what we read here from you guys? Please have Lots them. of
0: thoughts. I don't know where yeah. to start. Do you have a starting hmm. point, Joseph?
2: Um. Okay. Well, actually, so here's here's a place to start. But um, one thing that, that was kind of jumping out at me as we as we were reading this is that it seemed palpable to me that that. In this stuff that we're reading, there seems to be a very strong pattern. You know, it's almost like uh, Asimov is working from a, you know, from scaffolding, right? I mean, we, you know, something big happens. Frequently, the protagonist is arrested at the start of the novel, but it goes from arrest, or in in, in the case of a couple of, uh, you know, the Lige Bailey stories, you know, some sort of crisis, and then bam, they're like, you know, then it's a travel log.
1: Yeah. And then of course Harry Seldon and Gal Dornick, although they don't have a travelogue immediately, are arrested at the beginning of yep. the framing story of Foundation.
2: That's true. But then, you know, what it's it's yeah, then they move them all out to terminus. So yeah, I mean it, it's it's not exactly a travelogue, but it is they they are sent somewhere.
1: He does spare us the courtroom scene this time. Yes. Instead, we have an interrogation and then another interrogation. That's right. Yeah. And
0: you know, also like Asimov uh plots, we're we're given a kind of mystery and Absolutely. and, and, and yeah, to, 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 to frame this quest, mm-hmm. right? Like who, who is, who is responsible for uh making everything so perfect? <laughs> right. Let's, let's also, let's go where, find, let's go find where, them and, and knock them out. Where, where is earth? Where is where earth? earth the second right? foundation? So, and of
1: course of the major characters that we've been introduced, we were, we're going to start asking ourselves, who, what are they really doing? Like, are yeah. they, are they really who they say they are or are, are there multiple identities? What's going on? We, we do have this looming second foundation out there. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's going to become important later on, although it's not really presented as all that important here. I have the benefit of having read this book a number of times is that when they're looking at the star map, Traviz says to Pellerat, Hey, why don't we just go see where earth is? And Pellerat's like, really, we can do that as well. If it's in the database, we can find it. And he asks the computer to show them Earth, and nothing. There's nothing there. And that that is going to become part of the mystery later on. A mystery that's not going to be solved in this book. <laughs> Spoiler alert again.
2: <laughs> as, as if the title of the sequel weren't a dead giveaway. Hmm.
1: <laughs> yes. So we, you know, we certainly got a lot of kind of. Well we got a lot of exposition of what had happened in the previous books. Although it wasn't it wasn't too bad. It wasn't it like, was, you know, it like the the exposition, like
0: it was obvious it was exposition, but like it wasn't the most ham-handed exposition no. as of office ever done. It was, you know, some something it it was kind of like it felt like it was being done in a way that was natural to getting this the particular plot up and running.
1: Yeah.
2: Right. yeah although there are there moments when it felt a little bit like the um oh what was that the, the the merchant prince's story um where it really you know it felt like he was meticulously putting things into place in a way that it did, it didn't flow as nicely as it could have
1: yeah there's there's definitely a feeling of that that we're 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 setting things up here it's very clear that that there are things being set up which are going to be paid off later on. And of course, these characters, uh, these five characters, so there are going to be more characters, but these five characters are very important. Now, we're going to meet more char- important characters later on, and there's there's whole other storylines that are going to get introduced, but we have not got... Right now, we've just been sort of introduced to the first foundation, Trevise and Pellerat, and the travelogue is going to be Trevise and Pellerat traveling around space. But that is not the only storyline that we're going to get, so there's more to come. But maybe somebody told him that he could just assume you know what if people are reading this book they probably read the other books so you probably don't need to just like repeat the whole story because he does do that a lot and you know he does that in the robot stories where there's always a point in a robot story where he has to run down the three laws and we've all seen the three laws a million times thanks to that but maybe here maybe an editor said to him you know what just just Give them a little bit and just assume they've read the other ones. Is,
0: I didn't actually reread it, but is there an introduction which basically summarizes like, here? here's what's in the first trilogy? There's a prologue. A
1: prologue. And the prologue does talk some about that. Yeah. But it's not that long and it's not, again, it's not that onerous. I mean, he really okay. seemed to get out of his own way here okay. in ways that he hadn't as a as a younger writer. Yeah,
2: it's longer than the typical um, Encyclopedia Galactica entry, but That's it's true. But it's not, <laughs> yeah, lengthy and oppressive. It, it's what five or six pages, maybe.
1: Yeah, it's not. It's not too bad. Okay. So we're out in space, and so far, really, not much has happened. Right. All all we've done is set up this exile, and of course, there's the story of compor who I didn't really cover much in the in the summary, but. The mayor visits Compor and says, well, Trevise is going out looking for the second foundation and I want you to follow him. And and Compor kind of objects to that and says, look, I've got a wife. I've got a life. She goes, that ah, too bad. You you signed up for this. And, uh, you know, he's like, well, can I bring my wife? And she says, nope. And he says, what do you mean? She's like a hostage. And the mayor says, well, if you want to use that word, Sure. And uh, she actually wants him to follow Trevise, who was going to be jumping through hyperspace. And Compor objects and says, well, it's impossible to follow people through hyperspace. But it turns out that he used to do that as a sport. <laughs> yeah. And that uh, that the mayor is like, well, you know, dust off your old uh, your old hyperspace gloves and get out there and follow Trevise. You can, you can tell from the, the velocity and the trajectory and all this stuff about where he's going to go that you, you can actually judge a jump. Um, and and so Compor again really has no choice. He is he is not being given a choice. He is being given a, sh- a ship very similar to Trevis's ship. And he asks, why don't you just put a tracer on Trevis's ship? And the mayor says, well, Trevise would suspect that, and he'll look for it. So we're, we're not going to put it on. But then she tells Codel, we're going to put a tracer on on Compor's ship because he's you know he's basically never going to suspect that we're tracing him. So, so they've got Trevis going off, and you've got compor following Trevis, and the foundation people tracing compor And this is this is kind of very much a, a an Asimov structure, right, where you have these multiple layers of people plotting against each other.
2: Yeah, but that that the particularly the bit with uh, with compor it, it seemed a bit much. It's like like just one layer more than they needed, perhaps.
1: Well, I, again, even. Lionel Codell seems to agree with you because he says to the mayor, weren't you a little harsh there? And she says, ah, you know, the guy's already shown that he can't be trusted. He betrayed his friend. Because again, something I didn't mention is that the reason why Brano knows about Trevise's treason is that Compor told her about the conversations he'd been having with Trevise. And that gave her grounds to arrest Trevise. And they were pretty flimsy grounds anyway, but, and then she says to Compor, well, you know, you you betrayed Trevise, now I need you to keep on, I need you to keep your tabs on him. And yes, yeah, so Codel says, you know, that seemed a bit harsh, and, and she doesn't have any sympathy for Compor at all. You know, is it is it me, or is Mayor Brano
0: the most sympathetic character that we've gotten so far? <laughs> I, I like her so much better than anyone else. I mean, she... <sighs> She is a smart, effective leader. And, like, Golan Trevis, like, she's so many steps ahead of him. But, like, you know, he's like this, I mean, he's going to be our protagonist. He's like, you know, the rebel whom we're supposed to sympathize with. But he, he comes into the council chambers and he's just, like, waving his hands and you know, the Selden plan is fake, and I have proof, and blah, 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 and he just seems like such a nut job. Like, I'm thinking of him like he's Matt Gates or something, <laughs> to put it in U.S. <laughs> political terms.
1: Yeah, like- <laughs> I,
0: I was
2: trying to draw those analogies, and, and none of them quite worked, because, yeah. uh, I mean, on, on the one hand, yeah, there's a lot of simple, sim- sympathetic things about there, but on the other hand, she is such a full blown authoritarian or at least she's yeah, being one. She I mean it's you know we're just you know pushing these two guys around and threatening <laughs> threatening to execute them. It's, and, and, true. And, and, it's no, true. No, I can't do that legally, but I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, that's You know,
1: because she's got this one day when she can do that because she's so popular right now because she got the Seldon crisis so right. And you get this sense that she's been champing at the bit to cut through the red tape, and now that she finally has the chance to do it, she's going to use it to the to the ultimate. There is a scene where uh when when Travis meets Pellerat. And Pellerat was expecting him. Now, as far as Trevise is concerned, all this happened from yesterday to today. And Pellerat says, oh, I've, I've been dying to meet you ever since the mayor came to visit me. And Trevise is like, well, when did the mayor come to visit you? It's like four weeks ago. Yes. Trevise realizes she's been planning all of this for a month. right? And right. he just went off crazy during one day. And yeah. she's so far ahead of it that she was planning with Pellerat a month ago. I, I thought that was pretty pretty good. Asimov cannot help, though, (laughs) to bring out his usual sexism in describing Mayor Brano. Yeah. He describes her, first of all, as pretty sexless because she's an older woman. He also says she's only the sixth woman to be mayor of the Foundation in 500 years because, you know, he has to make it sort of special that she's a woman. And we're in the 80s already. I I mean, you know, okay, people were still sexist in the 80s, they're still sexist today, but Asimov just can't help it. You know, we're going to get
0: a lot of gender dynamics over the course of this long novel. And, like, I feel like Asimov is trying to show that he is up to date with the times. And yes, I have heard the voices of these women's libbers. Yeah. (laughs) Like, and so he's giving us, he's giving us, like, the powerful woman, but it's just, he doesn't really get it. Like yeah, yeah. like the like the, the the defeminizing of her is Asimov's yeah. way of showing that sure, yeah, women can be good leaders as long as they're not very woman like.
1: Yeah, she's more <laughs> or less kind of a Margaret Thatcher type. Yeah. Would have been the most powerful woman that Asimov had encountered to that point. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true.
2: Yeah, but the uh, yeah but if you look at I mean if we if we if we include Mayor Brano, right? If you look at like the the three fully realized female characters that I can think of in Asimov are her and Susan Calvin, and then there's the the um yeah. the nurse in um in uh, the the ugly little boy. And they're older and they're matronly and they're you know be you know, beyond being a sexy young thing.
1: Yeah. She, Beta so- and Arcady Daryl yeah, and then there's going to be bliss later on. Bl- is, yeah, well, bliss, bliss is like the just... other end of the spectrum, <laughs> yeah, no, right? Right. Exactly. So, but um,
0: but yeah, like Mayor Hanno reminds me a lot of Salver Harden. Mm. I think she's meant to. I think she right. Really yeah, is yeah. Right? makes right? sense. And, and so, yeah, so like, I, I mean, I guess that's why I like her. But it's also like you know, given the the way in which her gender is being described, it's it, it's kind of a sign of like you know, that, that this isn't, this is a little bit off. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. I think the weakest part of her presentation is when she's mooning over the fact that Trevise is kind of good looking.
1: Well, I wanted to mention that because (laughs) Asimov kind of, he sexualizes Trevise. Now part of that might be that Trevise is an Asimov stand in, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's also (laughs) like him saying, look, I can be just as sexist towards men, you know, that he's got, he's got, wavy hair and brown eyes and you know it's a, it's something he's only in the past done with women which is to when we are introduced to a woman he describes them physically when we're introduced to a man he less so uh but but here he does it with Travi's. but it doesn't it doesn't come out any better when he does it with Travi's. it no, doesn't but, make up for it but it's that. even
2: well although actually i think that might have been what what passed for not feminism but you know equality quote unquote in the sure. 80s i'm gonna
1: that- i'm gonna go off on a tangent here When my kids were small Mm -hmm. and they were going to public school, all my kids went to public school. They were always, this time of year, they were always learning Christmas songs, usually the same Christmas songs. And, um, you know, my oldest was born in 1992. So this is not like the ancient times. Right. And so we would go into the school and try to explain to them how inappropriate it was for, them, for my Jewish kids to be learning Christmas songs, and they would always throw in like a Hanukkah song,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that it was like, "Oh, we even things out." Look, there's Hanukkah songs too, yeah. and I would say, "Look, it it doesn't make the church-state violation better to add more religious songs." <laughs> <laughs> kind of the same things going on here with with Trevis, in my opinion. So <laughs> same <laughs> misunderstanding. Anyhow, um, yes, we do. We do see that. We do see the, uh, the sexualization of, of Trevise and the and the unsexualization of, of Mayor Brano. <laughs> he just can't. He just can't help it. And, and of course, we already read the prequels, which were written eight or nine years after mm-hmm. this book, and if anything, they were even worse from a yeah. ham-handed attempt to to be to have equality standpoint. Mm-hmm. The whole all of the scenes with uh with doors and doors topless and 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 harry drooling over doors and uh just we already <laughs> talked about it yes <laughs> we did but it's remember it's a almost a decade after this yeah
0: book. yeah so,
1: i mean I, I also think that there was a there's an element of asimov felt freed up to talk about sex a subject that he was quite interested in personally mm-hmm. <laughs> but who isn't but anyway <laughs> You know, in in the fifties and sixties, when he was writing the bulk yeah. of his fiction, he he wasn't able to. And I, I guess in Twilight of the Twilight of, was it Twilight of the Gods? Was, what's the book I'm thinking of, Joseph? Um, um, the gods themselves. Sorry.
2: Oh yeah, the gods themselves.
1: There's yes. a lot. There's a lot in there. But you know, here he's writing. He's going to write Foundation books. He he starts writing. Robot novels, and there's a lot of sex in the robot novels, in the later robot novels, which we've already gone through, mm. which are going to come out in the few years after this. So maybe you know Asimov is feeling a little free, and and maybe he's feeling like, well, if I'm going to be a modern science fiction author, I'm going to do what Robert A. Heinlein did. I'm just going to be a lot of sex, and and you know we're going to talk about. Well, that was women differently. How they
2: looked. That was differently not very successful, I think. Heinlein. Yeah.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> yes. Again, that's going to have to wait for our Heinlein podcast. The, the, the <laughs> Heinlein. Yes. But like when you read Stranger in a Strange Land, you just, yeah, you, you get a real insight into Heinlein's mind and it is not pretty. <laughs> yeah. It didn't work there either. <laughs> but maybe Asimov was saying, well, these guys are doing it, you know, and and I want to do it. I want to be a little more. I want to be modern. I want to, you know, I don't want to pretend that these things are only behind closed doors with the lights out. I don't know. He didn't do it. He did not particularly do it. Well, as we've, we've discussed before, but what does he do? Well, give me something he does well.
0: So I like the um, engagement with the ship in terms of um, like, you know, he gets, there's so much future technology that is wrong and uninteresting in, in these novels Um, the, the, the kind of, uh, interface, uh, um, that, that, that struck me as fun. Um, and I think if I remember correctly in like the author's intro to one of the editions of this book, he basically goes and says, you'll notice that I put computers in here because, I left them out in the fifties and that was a mistake. (laughs) Um, So we get a lot of focus on the computer, but um, you know, like it's, it's kind of um, one of the few times that I remember in Asimov, like envisioning of a technology that is genuinely like beyond
1: our, our reach still um and that is cool i agree i agree i i and i could also see computers developing along something like those lines you know where the pilot of a ship and 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 i've seen this in in other science fiction as well where, where the the ship becomes like an extension of the pilot's body right yeah the ship's sensors become his senses yeah and and all of that and and um it's true it's it's been 40 years and we don't have that you know, we're only just starting to do virtual reality and augmented reality stuff yeah we don't have that kind of interface but it 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 does sound like a plausible interface like we can laugh at his right. at the size of his of his floppy, floppy
0: basket yeah
1: <laughs> but this is this is you're right this is genuinely not only is it cool but it's also plausible right right I mean, of course,
0: we have you know interstellar travel, right? We're we're not going to get that for a while (laughs) yet, but but like that's that's like such that's almost like not. It's just like a thing that's taken for granted in any kind of space. uh, Sure, of course, right? So, um, but yeah, and and it's actually going to be a plot point. It is here later on. So um, you know, it's uh, it was it was a fun intro to the ship, and I enjoyed that.
1: He does do that actually pretty well, where, where and he always has where he he kind of introduces things early on which he is going to bring back later on as that they seem innocuous or just they just Mm. seem like a detail on the wall you know an interesting drawing or something but he is going to bring it back and and Mm. it's not easy to do that with his writing style which was more or less i mean he he probably outlined things i'm I'm guessing but he did not spend a lot of time pre-planning he just kind of Probably by this point in his life, he just sort of had an intuitive sense of laying down the building blocks of a story, knowing that they were going to circle around later on. So there's an awful lot of that happening here. Yeah, And and that he's done pretty compactly, pretty efficiently, and not terribly, obviously. All all good things in, in writing a book. He had not lost his ability to write. I mean, you know, 1982... He was still a really good science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Really Absolutely. Was. And the later robot novels, you know, while they had their weird points as well, you know, he was still writing really good mystery slash robot stories in, in those years.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it got really shaky until forward the foundations.
1: Yeah, he was really dying at, at that point.
2: Yeah, very much so.
1: And he, you could see it in the, in the book, in the story.
2: Yeah, well, one, one of the things, things yeah one of the things i really liked about the, the you know the bit with the computer is that it seems like kind of a natural extension to what we were seeing and i realized that this was written first but it seems like a natural extension to what we were what we learned about giscard later on and it makes me wonder to what extent daniel was involved would have been involved with developing this technology
1: well that is going to is going to stay in the land of speculation because we're not going to find that out.
2: yeah, but it seems it seems very natural. Um, yeah, you know, he had that ability. Clearly, you know, clearly the robots have the ability to you know upgrade themselves in these sorts of manners because certainly discard did it to did it to Daniel and I think discard maybe upgraded himself right. Um, and, and I mean, you know, to, to go from the you know to go from these sensing emotions to actually being able to interface thoughts is something that could very much very conceivably happen. It can very conceivably happen over the last what was like twelve thousand years or so.
1: Right. I mean, the computer does not give Trevise the ability to control people with his mind. No,
2: but but the the direct interface between machine um, and mind.
1: Yeah. Right. You know, that, let me
0: um, kind of broaden that question a little bit. And uh, one of the things that I was wondering, actually, is, um, at, you know, at some point uh, later in this uh, section, the mayor kind of gives a monologue about how, um, you know, Harry Seldon couldn't have envisioned the technological advances, right. and how that, that would kind of derail psychohistory, right? So, uh, and there is a fair amount of, stress given in these chapters and later on in the book on the ways in which the first foundation's tech is really going through the roof um and you know i i was wondering why like why didn't they redevelop robots (laughs) um well there may be there may be a direct
1: reason for that you know which which may be that the robots didn't want them to well, yeah, there's, a, there's a bigger there's actually a bigger question behind yeah. that which is that what we see and this is not just asimov this is an awful lot of science fiction mm-hmm. what we see is massive technological advance and very very little cultural difference yeah. You know, in Foundation, Salver Harden and cronies are chomping cigars because that's yeah. what people did <laughs> in the 1950s. And, you know, here we have Trevise. And uh, yes, he yeah. has several different sexual partners at various different times. He has sort of marriages that come in and out. That's a minor cultural difference. It more or less reflects what was happening anyway. But Trevise is not very different from people are, you know, how people were in the 80s or the 60s or the 50s the idea that technology should create massive societal change is one that science fiction writers often miss. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's particularly acute here because as you say, mm-hmm. he sets it up. He, yeah. he has the mayor yeah. talking about Harry Selden couldn't have seen the effect that technology would have on our society. But the reality is that their society is very much like the original galactic society that they had 500 years ago. Yeah. And, and it's a it's a missed opportunity to me. And yeah.
2: yet there is a there is a um, there's a line in there, and I forget who said it, but it would, it, probably when Travi is 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 uh, interfacing with the computer the first time, it's like, you know, oh my god, this technology is going to change everything.
1: Yeah, yeah, but we don't we don't get to see it change everything. And um, surely in the not just the five hundred years since the fall of well, it was it wasn't the fall of the galactic empire was probably 250 years ago but the 500 years since the beginning of this story there has not been an enormous amount of cultural change but in the 20,000 years of the existence of this timeline people are still just people and that's fine i guess but like bring it, why bring it up and then do nothing with it that 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 i think is a missed opportunity like can, i mean
0: can do, does anyone listening to this podcast think that our our uh culture in 2023 is more or less the same as 1523.
1: <laughs> well, I mean in some ways. Like you can yeah. read you can read descriptions of campaigning for office that were written in Roman times. Yeah. That sound exactly like campaigning for office today.
0: I mean, humans are and, still humans. There are continuities, but, but 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 like, you know, I mean there there should be there should be odd ways right in which we see genuine difference and And we don't i mean
1: just in our lifetimes there's a lot of there's been a lot of difference the internet differences yeah um you know equality for lgbtq people or at least some measure of equality for them obviously there's a long way to go there
2: well there's Um, not just a long way to go right but there's 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 a a a palpable backlash
1: oh yeah there absolutely is right now Yes, yes yes
2: so yeah maybe we get past that and maybe we don't
1: well again that's going to have to wait for our political podcast <laughs> <laughs> because yeah that that's you you're right absolutely right. So so the reality for us is there's there's been a mixture of cultural change and yeah. also people just being people. Um, and again you know science fiction of course is writing about contemporary people but you know it's saying things about them in the futuristic setting. But even so it, 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 and I said it twice already, but I, I feel like it's a missed opportunity for Asimov, but I mean, it would have, it would have, you know, to make the culture radically different would have been, first of all, it wouldn't have been easy, but it, it would have been a ve- very strong departure from the previous books in which the culture was our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and it would have been a major project. It wouldn't have been something I think that Asimov could have just sat down in front of a typewriter and started banging off. Um,
2: yeah, no, I mean and it might even to the it might even impact on the marketability of the books if it's too far off.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. People mm-hmm. people were excited about this because it was a foundation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they wanted the con the continuation of the foundation story. That's right I mean that's what it. I wanted. Right.
2: Oh yeah, right. absolutely. Me too.
1: And I I have always been kind of sad that we never got to the end. Um, you know, we got a little further than this, but not not too much. And maybe it wasn't really necessary to get to the end. But as a, let's say I read this when I was 17, you know, I, I wanted I
0: wanted the whole story. I did too. I've always wanted the end of the story, but I've, you know, I've been satisfied to assume that it did end in a new Galactic Empire. <laughs>
1: I think well, we actually not, know
0: that. Actually, that's canonical because of some of the references in the Encyclopedia Galactica. Well, we today. know that
2: the
1: Encyclopedia yeah. Galactica got yeah. published, right? But that does not necessarily tell us what the form of the Final Empire is. It doesn't tell us not what the to form spoil is. Spoils Foundation on Earth.
0: I think. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly, there's some language around like, you know, uh, on this is the start of the the road on the way to the second empire which we're now enjoying yeah well I, like there.
1: they they yeah. they name the years and it's yeah. like year 1023 fe which is the yeah. foundational era Yeah. so it's clearly it's a thousand years since the founding of the foundation and clearly they have published mm-hmm. despite the fact that they appeared to give up on it both in the books and in the tv show <laughs> that they at some time after 1000 they publish it but again, not to spoil too much, that does not necessarily mean that the foundation has established a yeah. true galactic empire. That's true.
0: Yeah. Although oh,
1: by the way, I, I like the little note that we
0: got in this section that the Encyclopedia Galactica is not the one that was planned, but it's actually it's basically Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody
2: somebody had to do it. Yeah but um actually a, a thing that um sort of interests interested me because it was making me reflect on that whole interregnum period you know if you look at you know what we see of galactic civilization you know it's not chaos it's not anarchy and and we learn that you know people are continuing to go out and colonize new worlds it 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 almost seems like Everything is just fine. I mean, and we kind of talked about this about you know when when we were talking about whether or not they, they would need a water clock or a sundial. Yeah. You know, it was, you know, I mean, it, it seems like you know everything seems fine except there's not a galactic empire. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like a you know a, a, a dy- dystopian um,
0: hellscape. It, it does in so far no. as where this this novel is being set up. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no, like, that's one other thing I like about this, mm-hmm. like the premise here, like it, it is, a you know, since we're, we're just off and running with this, um, you know, I, having read this since 1982, take it for granted, but like, I am, I assume when the publishers came to Asimov and said, here, we're going to throw a lot of money at you, um, He would have, his first step would have been to say, well, okay, where are we at? What would the next crisis be?
1: Mm.
0: And this is, this is a really good solution for like a next thing to do with this of like what, just recognizing that if the plan is at all on track, that's stupendously weird uh, given the size of the disruption of the mule. And then then what, what do you do with that? And yeah, where does I, it go and this, so that's a great. It's it, for me at least. It's a great hook into the beginning of where to go with this fourth novel in the series.
2: Yeah, yeah. You you were mentioning stuff that Asimov did well. Yeah, Trevis's reasoning there was just spot on and very compelling, and, and
1: made me want to made me want to read
2: more. Yeah,
1: yeah. And we don't visit um, barbarian worlds here. You know, I mean, we see Trent or. And we see the local people of Trantor are kind of backward farmers, but it's not chaos. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not Mad Max. They're (laughs) they've lost a lot of technology and now they're just farming on a world that used to be the heart of the empire's technology. That's true. But the places that uh, Trevise and Pellerat go, at least in this book, they're civilized, you know, they're, they're, they have hotels and restaurants, you know, (laughs) they're, they're spaceships, you know, they're, they're,
2: yeah you know, so nope. it's just sort of undercuts that there's going to be thirty thousand years of barbarism.
1: Well, again, he, he Selden did say that he was going to shorten that, and we're yeah. in the middle of that shortening. also for for Traviz and Pellerat, they're primarily going to planets that are either under the influence of the foundation or very much bordering on the foundation and and benefiting from the foundation's influence. so we we don't see them going to the chaotic potentially chaotic places. But but Dan, you're right, you know, that he mentions that there were 25 million worlds and maybe now there are 30 million because there's still plenty of mm-hmm. plenty of habitable worlds and people have gone out and colonized them, which does imply that they had spaceships and hyperdrive and and the ability to colonize planets. But maybe, you know, maybe we could, if we want to do our little bending over backwards, we could say, well, that's because Harry Seldon's plan is working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this thousand years is really not, not only is it not as long as the previously expected interregnum but also it's um it's not as bad yeah. so let's we, could th- we no, I, it
2: through i could buy that honestly
1: i think you'd have to right because yeah. it, it would have to be less terrible for it to only last one thirtieth the amount of time so and we all know that the whole cover story of the encyclopedia galactica was in fact just a cover story whether you're reading the books or watching the tv show you know that that was yeah, I'm sorry, Dan. <laughs> Dan is shaking his head with des- despair.
0: <laughs> <sighs> it's okay. I, I, I still, I still have my own private alternate reading.
1: And in the freed plan, there's going to be a real encyclopedia. Right.
0: <laughs> and it will fix everything
1: <laughs> with a working sundial. Louis Peren is the true hero. <laughs> the true hero. <laughs> the well, he actually <laughs> is the true hero of at least part of the TV show.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. He sacrifices himself. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah, and then the, the crisis wouldn't have been averted without him.
1: There you go. All right. Well, we we've covered, I think, most of what, what there is to cover in these four chapters, unless you guys have anything else in your notes that you would like to discuss. No, not me. So next time, I guess we will uh, we will cover another, I assume, similar distance. Yeah. So I think, and we I think... will.
2: I think if we just go in chunks of four chapters, where oh. it's pretty gonna be it'll be pretty uniform.
1: And we will meet some more major characters doing more major character things, and the story will in fact get going. I'm pretty sure in the next one. Next time we'll be on Trantor. Ooh, Ooh. Trantor. Alright. All roads lead to Trantor. And Trantor is stars and... That's the 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 name that stars up. That's a podcast. podcast dead that's giveaway right. hey that's the name of our podcast <laughs> he said the thing <laughs> all right well we'll wrap it up here and we will be back in two weeks with the next four chapters sounds awesome bye that's all for another episode of Stars End, recorded entirely on an earth sofa mostly free of radiation our music is it is coming by alex mason used for free on a creative commons license Unless someone 0 flaws us first, we'll see you again next time. Please like, rate, and review
0: us, positively only, on your favorite podcast app.
2: Also, check out our website, starsendpodcast.com, where you'll find additional content and our updated list of social media accounts. Good night from the Galactic Capital Trantor. This is where the stars end.